Good morning, everyone. I'm a little under the weather, as you can tell by my voice, so please excuse me. So as I might tell my kids at school, you need to pay really close attention because I don't have my teacher voice this morning. But, <clears throat> but I know you will. I know you will. And if you're wondering, uh, Charlotte has not left me and taken back her maiden name either. We're still married. <laughs> unless, unless somebody knows something I don't know. Enmity exists in this world, and we all know that. Enmity means hatred, hostility, opposition, opposing each other. It's a regular part of the human experience, and we know that. We're too familiar with it. From the grandest scale to the smallest, from the wars and violence between nations, we see it even today. Nations going to war with each other, hating each other, experiencing enmity. From the strife and violence, or the strife and disputes between co-workers on the job, we see hostility. From the fighting that goes on in families, unfortunately, with moms and dads and, and, and brothers and sisters, it happens. And we see uh, that hatred and we experience it. Even the church of the Lord is not immune to enmity, to hostility, to hatred that exists. Even though we were all created from one blood, a common human race from Adam and Eve, once they ate of the forbidden fruit, the hostility began. Conflict broke out between their sons, Cain and Abel, and it continues on to this day. We need something. We need something to bring us all back together, and we do have that something. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of the Savior. If you notice in this reading, that was read in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 13. We read about how we, as Gentiles, were separated. We were without Christ. We had no hope. We were without God in the world. We were eternally lost. But then Paul reminds us in verse 13, and look at that verse again. In verse 13, there's the common denominator. That now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So this morning what I want to look at is the power of the blood of Jesus. How extremely powerful it is. How it brought peace and had established Jesus at the chief, as the chief cornerstone. That's going to be our two points for this morning. The blood of Christ brought peace. If you continue with me in Ephesians chapter 2, look at the first part of verse 14. Where it says, For he himself is our peace. Well, what is peace? Let's try to define it. Many world leaders will take pieces of paper that has some official writing on it and sign it, and it's called a treaty maybe at the top, and that's supposed to stop the hostility. That's supposed to stop the enmity and the hatred and the violence. But we all know that's not the case. We all know that doesn't happen. This peace that we read about here, for he himself is our peace, Jesus himself is our peace, is not something necessarily written or defined by signatures on a piece of paper that can be destroyed, that can be lost, that can be even ignored. The blood of Jesus Christ brought this peace. It is Jesus. He is the peace. He is the one that brings us back together. The Hebrew word for this is shalom. It means wholeness. But the word here in the Greek means Harmony. 
He himself is our harmony. The blood of Jesus tore down all the bears that would keep Jew and Gentile apart. And now we're one because of that blood of Jesus. Well, well, watch the benefit of this peace. Continue reading with me in verse 14. It states, For he himself is our peace and has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now let's examine that just for a second if we may. The enmity was abolished. And this establishes Jesus as more than just a peacemaker. Even though he was a peacemaker, it does more than that. The text is stating, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, Jesus is the source, not just a peacemaker. It comes from him. He's the source of peace that makes those washed in his blood one. He broke down, quote, the middle wall of separation. There was an enmity. There was hatred and hostility, opposition between Jew and Gentile, which was the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Well, what does that mean? Well, both parties had these, both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had the Old Testament, serving the one true God, yes, but they had that writing. But the Gentiles had their laws too, right? It was man-made laws. They served idols. But what Jesus did by his blood He brought that together. Jesus fulfilled or abolished all these ordinances, thereby bringing peace. He tore the walls down. I vividly remember late 80s, early 90s, when the Soviet Union began to crumble. And you had that symbolic, well, actually a literal wall separating Eastern from Western civilizations, if you will. And then that wall began to come down. Abolishing that wall hopefully brought a little more peace to the world. I think we all know it did. But the walls Jesus broke down makes us all one. There's great symbolism in this wall of separation as we read about. In the temple proper, there was a wall, a literal wall that was the court of the Gentiles that separated that part of the temple that only the Jews could enter. This is what Paul was accused of in Acts chapter 21, when he was accused of taking a, a Gentile into the wrong section of the temple. We also know what happened when Jesus died on the cross. As he's on that cross, it says in Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 50, notice this reading. And Jesus cried out, <clears throat> excuse me. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and here's what happened the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom exposing the most holy place, symbolically stating we don't need it anymore. There's one race. There's one blood. There's one family, the family of God, that the blood of Jesus Christ brought everybody together. Jesus made peace by abolishing the enmity, the hostility to, quote, to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And he did this by shedding his pure, sinless blood on the cross. Jesus was the common denominator that brings us all together. So there's great benefits of this peace. And a second thing, a second benefit of this peace, 
reconciliation was established. Reconciliation was made. Notice in verses 16 to verse 18, if you would, please. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now let's examine these verses if we may. Reconciliation was established. Not only did Jesus, his blood, abolish the enmity that kept Jew and Gentile against each other, separated, it also brought Jew and Gentile into a proper relationship with God. <coughs> because we're all lost. And with Jesus, his blood, cleansing us of our sins, the wall might as well still be up. But he not only broke that wall down, his blood washes our sins away. Because of the blood of Jesus, we are reconciled to God in one body. You know that Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that in just a little in, in couple of chapters over. There is one body. There is one Lord. But prior to our reading, our text this morning, Paul has already established very clearly what he meant and what he means by one body. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 if you would, please. And notice this section of Scripture. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. God, the Father, put everything under the Son's feet and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. There is not a church for the Jew. There is not a church for the Gentile. There is not a church for this belief. There is not a church for that belief. There is one and only one body, church, and one head, Jesus of Nazareth. The body of Christ, the church of Christ. Now notice the connection of this reconciliation, though, to the Godhead. Look at verse 18 one more time. For through him... We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. That's a powerful verse. And there's sometimes we look at these verses, we sort of scan over them. That's a powerful verse when you stop and think about it. It says, through Him, who's Him? Jesus the Son. By one Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, the Helper. Has, we have access to the Father because of that. So through the death, the burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was sent back to guide men in the truth and to the truth. And this truth, truth instructs us in how to be one, how to be reconciled, how to have a relationship with God the Father. So because Jesus shed his blood, making reconciliation possible... Look at verse 19, please, one more time. Or at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're no longer strangers. 
We all know what a stranger is. We teach our kids, don't be messed around with strangers. If you don't know them, stay away from them. But Jesus, as a body, has taken that away. We don't have to be strangers, spiritually speaking, religiously speaking. Jesus took that all away. We are no longer foreigners. We now have knowledge that we were always a part of the plan. Gentiles were always a part of the plan of God to bring us into one fold and one shepherd. We studied that in, first in, a, in John, in our Bible boat study, in John chapter 10, or 9, 10, and 11, especially chapter 10, where Jesus talks about, I am uh, the good shepherd. I am the door. There's going to be one fold and one shepherd. He talks about the fold that he has. He also mentions there's other sheep that I have to bring in. All through, and that's just one example of all the great passages that talks about we're not foreigners anymore. We are fellow citizens with the saints. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We had no rights as citizens. Now we are fellow citizens with God's people. We are members of the household of God. We were without God in the world. Now we are part of God's family. Everyone in here probably knows this lyric. I'd like to read it to you if I may. From God's family. That great hymn, God's family. It reads, we're part of the family that has been born again. Part of the family whose love knows no end. For Jesus has saved us and made us his own. Now we're part of the family that's on its way home. The blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood has brought Jew and Gentile together as well as reconciled us to the Father. To his Father and our Father. But there's something else that's happened here. The blood of Jesus Christ has brought peace, given us peace, and took away all the hostility, all the barriers. But the blood of Christ established him, though, as the chief cornerstone. We have a unique privilege today, when you really stop and think about it. We have access to true peace through Jesus, or through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can be reconciled to a relationship with God. We can be fellow citizens with God's people. We can be a part of God's family. This is possible because of the foundation that the household of God is built upon. Look at verse 20 to verse 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me just a second. All right, we can make it now. <clears throat> On the foundation of the apostles. The apostles were given the Holy Spirit. We know from Acts chapter 2 and other promises in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 and what happened in Acts chapter 2 and so on. The, whole, the, the apostles were given that Holy Spirit to guide men and to write and to guide. There was the foundation of the prophets who would prophesy and sometimes preach. So the Holy Spirit himself provided the materials for a solid foundation. This is the Holy Spirit's part. But Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. 
David Lipscomb made a really great comment on this. And here's what he stated. He said, the cornerstone is a massive stone in which two lines of the wall at their foundation meet, by which they were bonded together and on the perfect squareness of which the true direction of the whole wall is depended. Since the slightest imperfection in the cornerstone will be indefinitely multiplied along the course of the walls. So if the cornerstone were off just a hair, the entire structure would be misshapen and in trouble. So the foundation that we have then is sure and it's proper for a holy temple in the Lord. What does he mean by this? A holy temple in the Lord. There's a lot of debate about this and you read about this and scholars may have different thoughts. In my research, I think he's referring to the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 16, Notice what Paul wrote about this. He said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So again, verse 22 of our text, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God dwells in each Christian by the Holy Spirit. And again, this is debatable. And people have different aspects and avenues of how they view this. If I may, I'd like to give you mine. For me, that means the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and He does if I'm following this. What did the Holy Spirit give to mankind? This. And if I am studying it, and I am applying it, and I'm allowing this to guide my life, the Holy Spirit is in me. It dwells in me. And I believe that's what uh, the Apostle is talking about here. So all this, though, every bit of this, hinges on Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Would you hold on to Ephesians chapter 2 and go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. <coughs> First Peter chapter 2. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 4. Bearing in mind, please, keeping in the back of your mind, or actually the forefront of your mind, what we just talked about back in Ephesians. In First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, it reads, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also... As living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We can offer them up. We don't need a priest. We don't need a go-between. We already have it. Jesus. Now it's up to us. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim, not for me to get the glory, not for me to shout out, hey, look at me, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who, here we go, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Prophecy predicted that Jesus would be the chief cornerstone. And to the believers, as Peter stated, we are living stones as members of the church of Jesus Christ. The chief cornerstone is precious. Without it, everything's misshapen. Without it, everything falls apart. That's why it's precious. Excuse me. That's why He is precious. We are a chosen generation then. As the Jews at one time were a chosen nation, we are now the chosen generation. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're a royal priesthood. We don't need priests to go between us now. We can do our own praying. We can, we can ascend to heaven. We can go to heaven. We can talk to the Father without any in-between besides Jesus, of course. We're a holy nation. His own special people. But the most beautiful thing is we found mercy. We found grace through Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. But to those who don't believe, to non-believers, it's a stumbling stone. To non-believers, it's a rock of offense. To unbelievers, they're not attaining the mercy that is here. I want to stop and remind us all of a sudden, all of something. I think you know this. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir. But think about this. I just want to make a brief statement. Why are we here? Why are you here right now? Why are you sitting in this pew? Remember why we're not here. We're not assembled as a social group would. That's not why we're here. It's not why we're supposed to be here. We're not assembled because we need something to fill our time. Hopefully that's not why you're here. We are assembled to show an almighty God He is worthy of our time and our effort. By the songs we sing to Him, by us stopping to remember the beaten, crucified body of the precious Son, Jesus and His blood that was spilled as we just did a moment ago, by studying from the message He personally had delivered to us from the Holy Spirit. Why are we here? Why are we assembled together? Are we here to bring attention to ourselves? Are we assembled here to focus our minds or our hearts on the one worthy of assembling in the first place, the creator of the universe? Jesus asked, once asked Peter, James, and John, what, could you not watch with me one hour Jesus is saying, I'm about to spill my blood for you and mankind. I don't necessarily want to go through with it, if you remember the prayer, but he did. He shed his blood that we might be forgiven. Believers and non-believers all have it. And he brought us peace. He tore down all the walls. He took away the hostility. He took away the hatred. He took away the opposition. And now we can be one body with one shepherd. And he did this. And by shedding his blood, he established himself as the chief 
cornerstone. Without Jesus, it all falls apart. Without Jesus, and let's put it this way, without, the, without Jesus as the cornerstone, the church is going to be a misshapen oddity. It's not real. But Jesus as the chief cornerstone is the head of the church, his body. But you think about Jesus, though, also as the chief cornerstone. And if we're not following that chief cornerstone in our lives personally, and you probably know this sitting there right now, your life falls apart. Life is not bearable without Jesus. And knowing that Jesus shed his blood for us and that Jesus is that chief cornerstone. So, folks, I ask you now. As a matter of fact, why don't you go ahead and get your hymn books. Leonard has this song. <clears throat> Leonard has a song of encouragement. Selected, and we're going to sing that song in just a moment. And as we sing that song, I want you to think about something. Do you have peace in your life? Do you have true Christian biblical peace in your life? The peace that Jesus demolished, got rid of, broke down. Jesus is, whether we believe it or not, is the chief cornerstone. And he can bring meaning to your life. He can bring, he can bring happiness to your life. But most importantly, as we read from 1 Peter, he brings mercy. He brings grace. And some of you may need that this morning. Some of you may need to become a Christian this morning. Give your life to Jesus fully give your life, understanding that he shed his blood, that that could happen. And as I scan the audience, I, I don't know. Maybe you need the blood of Jesus, need to be washing the blood of the Lamb right now. And if you do, don't let Satan keep you glued, your feet glued to that floor. Step out and walk down. Or it may be, it may just be that there's not peace in your life. There's not harmony. There's not shalom. There's not wholeness. There's not harmony in your life. Give your life back to Jesus now. It may be that your life is falling apart because you've gone away from that chief cornerstone. Get back on it and be a part, a working part of the building, i.e. the body of Jesus Christ. If you need help in any way, why don't you let us help you right now as we all stand and sing.